Good morning, church. Thank you to Pastor Sam for that introduction. That was super nice. Um, I've really enjoyed my residency here, being here the last year and, and few months. It really has been a blessing. I get to serve in a ton of different areas, and I can't think of anything better than that. I get to work with college students whom I love. I get to teach and preach, and because Jake makes me do this, I, I like do his laundry and like <laughs> wash his dishes and stuff. I thought that was kind of weird, but he kept saying something about like Mr. Miyagi and wax on, wax off. Apparently, it's supposed to help my preaching, uh, so I guess we'll see. This weekend, I was reminded of a movie from my childhood, and I think this is going to be a pretty deep cut for you 90s kids and or parents of 90s kids. Does anybody remember this movie, Homeward Bound? Yeah, we got, we got some... If you haven't seen it, or if it's been like 20 years since you've seen it, basically the plot of this movie is that these three pets get separated from their family, and they are like decide to do this giant adventure where they're going to come all the way through the Sierra Nevada mountains and try and make it back home. It is the goofiest movie I can think of, but like I love it. I think it's great. They have bear encounters and fight mountain lions. The cat survives a fall off of a waterfall at some point, so like you know it's historically and reasonably accurate. <laughs> at the end of the movie, uh, of course, because it has to have this nice happy ending, you see the, the family's all standing outside, and they haven't seen their pets in however long. And they're standing outside, and the youngest son hears a bark off in the distance, and he's like, I, I know that bark. I think that's Chance. I think that's my dog. And his parents are, are trying to kind of, like, they, they don't know if it's him or not. They don't want him to get his hopes up. But then, sure enough, over the horizon, Chance comes running. And they have this beautiful reunion, boy and his dog. And then over the next couple of minutes, you see the reunion between both uh, the cat and the daughter, and then ultimately between the dog and the oldest son. And it's like a great happily ever after kind of movie. Um, I may or may not have cried this weekend when I went and watched the clip again. <laughs> I plead the fifth on whether or not I actually did. I just, I may have. And I'm thinking about this movie, and I'm like, what is it about a movie like this? Right? What is it about a, a story, an adventure like this, that tugs at our heartstrings so much and makes some of us cry? And I think that, that a big part of it is that we love the feeling of home, right? We love the feeling of being at home. We love what it means to be at home. And so a story when there's like a happily ever after and the family's all back together and they're all at home, safe and sound, this means something to us. This is something that we really appreciate. And I think part of the reason why we like these movies so much are because the movies have the happily ever after. But we know for us, the real world isn't so happily ever after all the time, right? Like, we experience brokenness even in what should be the greatest place ever for us, which is home. Even in the moments when we're most at home, it doesn't quite feel like that. And I think this week is a good time to talk about that because maybe that's something that you guys are coming in this Sunday, having felt even this weekend with Thanksgiving. Right? It's a great time. We're able to, to celebrate and spend time with our family and loved ones. But maybe you noticed, like, it wasn't quite up to what you were hoping it was going to be. 
or it didn't feel like it should have, or maybe there was conflict between family members that you wish wasn't there on, on such a nice holiday. I think for a lot of us, we, we have loved ones that we miss that have passed, and so the holidays are extra hard because we miss them. But whatever it is, this feeling that we have, it comes from the fact that things aren't the way that they should be. Even when we're home, there's something wrong with home. And so what I want to talk to you guys about this morning, the, the thing that I think is wrong with this world, the thing that causes all of this brokenness, if we had to sum it up in one word, it's exile. The problem is exile. Home doesn't feel like how home should feel because we're not actually home in the way that we should be. This is something that goes all the way back to the beginning. So in order to uh, get to Jeremiah 29, we actually have to go all the way back to Genesis 1. I promise this won't be a, a two-hour sermon or anything, but we need to, to get our Bible muscles working a little bit and build us a foundation that can hold the weight of the rest of this passage. And so if you think all the way back to Genesis 1 and the creation of Adam and Eve, right, they're created and then given a command, given instructions as to what they are to do now. We call this the creation mandate. This is Genesis 1.28. It says, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So humanity has a purpose. They have something that they're supposed to do. And while they're supposed to be doing this, they need to be doing it in obedience. There's one thing, as they go out and fulfill this creation mandate, that they're not supposed to do. Right? Eat from this tree. Of course, we know the story. They eat from the tree. Right? That's not a shock to any of us. But what I want you to notice is, what was the punishment for them? What was the punishment for eating of this tree? It was exile. They were at home in the Garden of Eden. They were home in the perfect presence of God. But when they sinned, they were cast out of the garden. They were taken from their home away into a foreign land, into exile, into a place where things aren't as great as they are in Eden, and now that's where they've got to live. It's been exile from the beginning, and, and exile and sin, they always go together in the Bible. Uh, the way that I've heard it described that I think is really helpful is that exile and sin, they go together like a ham and cheese sandwich. You don't get one without the other, or it's not a ham and cheese sandwich. So as you're reading the Bible and you know that, that this idea of sin is just pervasive throughout all scripture, you should notice that the theme of exile is also constant throughout all of scripture. See, for Adam and Eve, you get exile. But then what happens next? Cain kills Abel. What's his punishment? It's exile again, right? He's brought further east of Eden, condemned to be a, a fugitive and a wanderer, an exile of the land forever. He's never going to be fully at home anywhere, and it's because of his sin. This early biblical story, it culminates in Genesis 11, when there's the creation of what we might call the anti-Eden. You know it as Babel. In the story of the Tower of Babel, what, what's familiar to most of us is that a bunch of people come together and they build a big tower to the heavens, and a lot of us are like, what does that have to do with anything? Why is that such a big deal? Why does that mean that the languages scatter? And what I want you to grasp from this passage is that what Genesis 11 is ultimately about is about the people rejecting the creation mandate of God to go out and fill and subdue the earth. It's them rejecting that, coming all into one place, and what they're, what they're really doing is usurping God's authority. 
They're telling God, we actually don't need you. We can make a tower to the heavens on our own. We can ascend to God on our own. You'll notice uh, Babel sounds a lot like Babylon. And that's because in the Hebrew, it's actually the same word. So from the beginning, from the beginning, you have pitted against each other the good garden and the bad city. Eden versus Babylon. And so this theme we're going to expect is going to continually crop up throughout the story of the Bible. And this is exactly where we find ourselves. This is exactly what builds us a foundation to be able to understand Jeremiah 29. In the passage that James read for us this morning, the first three verses, they provide us our context. And in them, with a lot of names that are really hard to pronounce, and I think James did a great job, essentially what we're seeing in it is that Jeremiah has written a letter to a group of Jews who are now in exile in Babylon. It shouldn't surprise us that it's in Babylon because we've just talked about Genesis 1 through 11. We know that this is how it works. This is the anti-home. This is anti-Eden. The question is, why are they in exile and why now? So we, we think about the biblical story. Well, right after Genesis 11, right after the Tower of Babel, God chooses Abraham and makes a people for himself. Of this people come the Jews, and God enters into a covenant relationship with these people. The covenant, it's, it's more like a marriage than it is like a contract, and there are these stipulations and things that go with the contract, or with the, the covenant. And so there are blessings for if the Israelites are to obey it and, and uphold their end of the bargain. Things are going to go well for them because God wants to bless them in this real land. He wants to bring them into the promised land and, and make it like a new Eden as much as possible. To restore his presence with the people and have it be a place where then they can go out and bless the nations around them. That's God's desire. But if the Israelites don't hold up their end of the bargain, if they sin and rebel against God, there's a, a bunch of consequences that are going to happen for that. And one of those, which shouldn't surprise us at all now, is exile. So the people know that if they rebel against God, they will be exiled from their land. They will not be able to be in the promised land anymore. Centuries go by. If you've read the Old Testament, you're familiar with how this goes. They break the covenant over and over and over and over again. It's kind of crazy to read. You're like, how did they not get it by now? And they fail over and over and over again. They choose to, to worship other gods than God. And eventually... I mean, God has been patient and, and loving and kind throughout all of this. The first time they rebelled, he could have sent them into exile. But he let this go on for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. But eventually, enough was enough, and it was time that the agreed-upon consequences of breaking the covenant were to come about. And so this is about the year 600 B.C. at this point. Babylon, it's risen to be a, a global superpower, and in the span of about 20 years and, and three invasions, Babylon comes in and destroys what's left of Israel, ransacks Jerusalem, destroys the temple, and carries off thousands and thousands and thousands of Jews into a foreign land, into exile, into Babylon. And that's where we find ourselves in this passage this morning. Life uprooted, these thousands of Jews are trying to figure out what to do now. What am I supposed to do now that I've been brought out of my land? My land was my identity. My God is my identity, and now it, it seems like he's abandoned us. So what do we do? 
And it's in the midst of this chaos and confusion that the people get a letter from Jeremiah. But this letter from Jeremiah, it's really a letter from God himself, right? Through the pen of Jeremiah, telling them what to do. So we unpack the letter. God makes something very clear in the introduction. This is verse 4. He makes this very clear. It is not ultimately Babylon that sent the Jews into exile. It was God. Listen to verse 4. He says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile. Whom I have sent. God's saying, guys, make no mistake. The Babylonians didn't come in under my nose and destroy you. It's not like I didn't know this was happening. This is significant because if that's what happened, if that's what the people believed, then they would probably be tempted to play the victim card and say, well, it actually has nothing to do with our sin. It's because of the Babylonians' evil that they came in and did this. And God's saying, no, 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 I'll deal with the Babylonians in my own time. You need to know that you are in this situation because of your sin, because of your individual rebellion against me. That is why you are in exile. He points back, he's looking at the covenant, he's saying, you've known this for centuries. This is now the situation. And with that underway, he gives a list of instructions, kind of a manifesto for how they are to live in exile now. And to summarize what these instructions are saying, God's basically saying, unpack your bags because you guys are going to be here for a while. He had already said that the exile, it was going to last for 70 years, but there were false prophets of the day who were trying to say, no, 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 guys, you've got it wrong. God didn't actually say that, or if he did, he didn't mean it. What he actually meant is that that exile, it's only going to last for maybe two years. It's going to be a lot shorter. And if it's only going to be two years, if it's going to be a really short exile, there's not much sense in, in telling them to do anything during it. But God's saying, no, settle down. You guys are going to be here for the long haul. Right, if you're on vacation, it doesn't make a lot of sense to unpack your suitcase into like the hotel dresser. And if you're somebody who does that, I think you're crazy. <laughs> If you're somebody who moves constantly, you probably live out of boxes because why unpack if you're just going to have to put everything back into the box and move again at the drop of a hat? doesn't make a lot of sense. If you're a prisoner of war, it's probably not the best time to hop on the local dating app, find a wife, get married, and start trying to have kids. It's just not practical at the time. But if you're going to be here for a while, maybe you do need to do something. And so God's instructions, in his instructions to build houses and, and plant gardens and everything else that we're going to look at, what he's really saying is, get ready to have an active exile. This exile, it's not like this giant divine timeout where God's going to tell them to sit in a corner for 70 years and think about what they've done. This is to be a time of active obedience, where God is demanding from them the same thing he's been demanding from them all along, which is obedience to him. This is what God ultimately wants. And what he wants them to do, I find this very interesting, what he wants them to do, what he wants them to be obedient about, it's actually the same thing that God has wanted his people to be obedient about the entire time. Did you notice this? Did you notice when I read uh, Genesis 1 a, a minute ago, that it actually sounded very similar to what James read for us this morning. 
Did you hear the echoes of Genesis 1 in the Jeremiah 29 call to create and cultivate and multiply? It's the same idea. It's to fill and subdue, to go out as God's image bearers and have a real incarnational presence in the place that you're at. God's calling them to do the same thing he's been asking them to do all the time. In other words, God is telling his people to do Eden work in Babylon. He's not telling them to be like the Babylonians in Babylon. And he's not telling them to wait until they're back in Eden to do their Eden work. He's saying do the Eden work in the here and now, in Babylon, where it's going to be a lot harder than when it was in Eden. This is an important truth for us because if it's true that we can look back to the beginning and see that exile then means that the people here and now in in Jeremiah 29, that it's relevant for them, if that's true, that they are to do Eden work in Babylon, it's true for us as well. Because we're exiles too, right? We are exiles too. And so if if we can look back and say that this is relevant for them, then in these 2,600-year-old instructions to a group of Jews in the Middle East, we can actually find that this is incredibly relevant for what God asks of us to do in our exile. And if you're a Christian here today, you are in exile. Peter is confident to call us that when in in 1 Peter 2, he says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. The author to the Hebrews, likewise, he says, These all died in faith, talking about many of the biblical saints. He says, These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, And having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. If you are a Christian, you are in exile. The moment that you became a follower of Jesus, you became a citizen of Eden again. Your citizenship is in heaven. You were taken out of Eden with Adam's sin. That's how it works. But in the moment that we believe and have faith in Jesus, in the moment that he saves us, we have that citizenship again. But look around you. We're not in Eden right now. This doesn't feel like Eden. We are in what, what one theologian calls a bunch of little Babylons. And so these instructions now for us are incredibly relevant. And I, I think we can summarize this all in one big point. That if you only take away one thing this morning, it would be this. If you're a follower of Jesus, God wants you to spend your life building houses and planting gardens in Babylon. That's the whole thing that I'm getting at. If you're a follower of Jesus, what God wants you to do with your life in your exile is to settle down and build houses and plant gardens in Babylon. That's the task. And and this is basically faithful presence in a foreign land. That's what God's asking of us. I think this passage outlines four clear ways that we can do this. And so let's, let's go ahead and unpack what these four ways are. Starting in, in verse 5, we get the first task, which is, again, build houses and plant gardens. In verse 5, we see, build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Now, for the Jews of the day, this obviously had a very literal component. There was no Babylonian Zillow or Kroger down the street that they could go to, so they, like, they needed a place to live. 
And so while this might have a, a literal component for us today, I think the underlying principle is what's really significant for us. And the underlying principle is that we need to be present where we are. And to be present where we are, we need to essentially do what we do best for the glory of God. We need to be the kind of people who steward what God has given us to the advantage of the kingdom by cultivating the world around us, cultivating our little parts of the garden. So I think about it like this, you know, if you're a graphic designer, build houses and plant gardens as a graphic designer. If you're an accountant, do that as an accountant. If you're a stay-at-home parent, build houses and plant gardens as an accountant. Have a very real presence in wherever you're at in Babylon and seek to just live there and exist there, not to disengage. Sometimes there's a temptation for Christians to say, well, I'm only here for so long. Let me just skate by until I get to heaven. It's not what the passage wants from us. That's not what God wants from us. He says the fact that you're not here for a long time is actually the very reason why you need to, to get working now and to have this presence now. We settle down and we invest with what we've been given. And I want you to notice, this isn't a call just for the young people in the room. A passage like this, it sounds like the kind of go-getter mentality that you'd find in your 20s and 30s. And so I can hear the temptation to, to hear this passage and say, well, okay, that was me years ago. But it's not me now. The circumstances just don't line up. It, it doesn't apply to me anymore. But I disagree. The call to build houses and plant gardens is a call to be human. And if you've got breath in your lungs, God is still expecting this of you. Now, of course, what it looks like to build and plant in your 70s is going to look a lot different than what it looked like to build and plant in your 20s, but it's still going to be building and planting. And I'll tell you, one way that this happens, it's a nice thing that it's Jehovah Jireh month, and we've been talking about this idea of generosity for generations. Building and planting for the older generations, a lot of times, is going to look like investing in the generations to come. These, these, these are applicable for all of us in the room, no matter our age, no matter our stage of life. Number two, we multiply. Verse six says, take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and don't decrease. You hear the echoes of the creation mandate to, to be fruitful and multiply in this language. Now, for the people of the day, again, this had this very literal component where if you're in exile for two years, it's probably not the time to try and start a family. But if you're going to be there for a while, then you should be concerned with doing what God has always asked of you to do. So for some of us, this will look like pursuing having families. This will look like getting married and working towards having children, building a family, and raising them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Right? This has always been a primary mode of discipleship and how God uh, intends for his people to grow. But we also recognize a larger and universal context that we get from being on this side of Jesus' resurrection, and that context is evangelism. Because the people of God don't just grow ethnically, right? The people of God grow by being spiritually the people of God. There are people that need to enter into the fold. 
And so it's our responsibility to bring the gospel, bring the good news of what Jesus has done on their behalf to them, because it is through the preaching and hearing of the word that souls are saved. If you're in exile, the call isn't to build houses and plant gardens so that you've got a really big house and a really nice garden. It's so that you've got the kind of presence to where you can now impact the people around you. We use what we have in order to multiply the people of God so that in this life, in, the, in these few years that we have, we don't decrease. We're not just trying to survive. We're not just trying to get by, but we're confident in what the Holy Spirit is doing in and through us, and we say, we're going to continue to grow. So we build and plant, and we multiply. Number three, we seek the city's welfare. This is verse 7. It says, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf for in its welfare you will find your welfare. I find it interesting. Um, the letter, it actually, it doesn't say that the reason why we seek the welfare of the city, it's actually not for Babylon. We might assume that it's for the benefit of Babylon here, but God makes clear that it's actually for the benefit of the exiles. What he's getting at, he's basically saying that if you seek and pursue there to be like a state of well-being around you, there will be a state of well-being around you. Like you live in Babylon, it is of your best interest that things in Babylon are going well. If Babylon is getting ransacked and burned to the ground, you're in Babylon, so you are too. I think the truth in this passage helps us find the middle ground between two extremes that Christians often fall into, one of which is wrongly holding to this prosperity gospel theology that says that God's biggest intent for my life is to make me as healthy and happy and rich in Babylon. We believe that what God's ultimately most concerned about is that I'm a, like, as happy and healthy as I can be while I'm in exile. Guys, that's not God's concern. That is not his biggest concern right now. So we don't want to fall off the side that way, but in, in trying to correct that, sometimes we swing so far to the other side and we say that what God really wants from me is to pursue as much suffering as I can humanly like, possibly get into myself. And that's not what God's saying either. He's not saying that you're more holy if you force upon yourself an extreme asceticism that he's not calling you to. This passage helps us find a really good middle ground where we can genuinely seek the well-being of the place that we're in and seek to pray for it and seek that it would be a, a better place, seek God's shalom there and know that ultimately it's not all about us. It's good for us now, but we don't need it. If things aren't going well, God's still good and God is still on the throne. And if things are going poorly, God's still good and on the throne. We seek the city's welfare, but we don't fall off the edge to either extreme. We need to consider what this looks like for us in our little Babylon, which is Knoxville. That's the place in which we find ourselves. So what does it look like to actually be people who seek the welfare of Knoxville, seek its well-being, and pray for it? And simply, I think that it means that we need to engage and not avoid. Oftentimes, Christians, we fall into this trap of, of wanting to pull away from the world. We want to make our own little bubble where we hang out with our Christian friends until we make it to heaven. I don't think that's what God's calling us to. We wouldn't be here if that were the case. 
We have something to do in Babylon, and so he expects that we're going to engage. I understand that this is hard because, it, like, especially in the case of these Jews, God's telling them to engage with the very people who like, dragged them from their homes and took them into exile. These probably aren't the people I want to like, go hang out with on a Friday night either. But God's calling us to have a faithful presence with them, and this forces us to engage. What this looks like specifically, I think it looks like being Sermon on the Mount people. I think it looks like being people who are salt and light in the community. We've been talking about this for the last handful of weeks in here on Sunday mornings. What Jesus is getting at in the Sermon on the Mount. We're going to continue to be working through it over the the next few weeks. So I'd encourage you, if you're looking for some practical applications of what it looks like to seek the city's welfare, go back and and look at your notes from, from these previous weeks. Go back and watch, listen to an older sermon I think you're going to find a lot of practical help for what this looks like. And then finally, number four, we don't listen to the liars. This is verses eight and nine. It says, For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Do not let your prophets and your diviners who are among you deceive you. Do not listen to the dreams that they dream, for it is a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, declares the Lord. Remember, the liars then, it was these false prophets who were going around saying, God didn't actually mean what he said. The exile's only going to be a couple of years. It's not going to be that full 70. For us, we similarly have liars. We have the, the enemies of the world and the flesh and the devil. And these enemies seek to destroy us through lies. They come in and, and they tell us to doubt what God has actually said. All goes back to the garden, right? Did God really say? And so we recognize that we need to be able to actually fight these lies. We need to reject the lies and reject the liars. And the way that we do this is with the truth. Ephesians 6, Paul's talking about the armor of God, right? Only offensive weapon, sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. The thing that you have to fight with, it's truth. And so the question is, Do you know the word of God well enough to wield it? Are we a people who know the word of God in and out enough that we can actually fight against the lies that we encounter all the time? We need to know the word. We're tempted to believe a lot of things, a lot of lies, whether it's about our identity, our purpose, our exile, our suffering, our God. We're tempted to believe lies like, that God doesn't really want us to do all this. This sounds great and all, but this isn't like Monday through Saturday kind of stuff. We're tempted to believe the lies that like building houses and planting gardens, as long as you do it, it doesn't matter who you're doing it for. You can do it for yourself and and build up things for yourself, which is basically just the American dream. And that's fine because you're doing the thing. We're tempted to believe that we don't need to pursue growth and spiritual maturity as long as we're confident that we're saved. We think that our sin won't have real consequences because we're Christian. These common lies that that seep in and seek to destroy us, we need to be equipped to address and reject them. And to to put it in layman's terms, read your Bible. (laughs) That's what I'm getting at. This is the read your Bible part of the sermon. (laughs) But not just read it, right? Study it. Meditate on it. Let it get into our bones so that it's like seeping out of us. We want to be people of the word. 
So these are the four things that we do in exile. We build houses, we plant gardens, we multiply, we seek the welfare of the city, and we reject the liars. And these are all great things, but there's still a problem. I don't know if you picked up on it, but there's still a problem. All this obedience is great, but it doesn't take away the sting and the pain of not being home. We're still in Babylon, and I don't know about you, I don't want to be in Babylon. I want to be home. I want to be in Eden. Listen to the the last few verses of this passage. This is verses 10 through 14. When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you, and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. Sure enough, God was true to his word. The 70 years ended and the Jews were able to return home. Because this this wasn't ever just about God punishing his people. It's not that God was being mean and vindictive. This is a corrective punishment. The hope all along is what we see in verse 13. It's that the people would seek God with all their heart. That's what God desired from the get-go. And he told them that from the get-go. The purpose of the exile is to have the people desire to return to the Lord. And so in this, we see that he is faithful to fulfill his promises and that he was going to bring them back. And as we see that, that he's going to bring them back and he has plans to give them a future and a hope. And he does this because they do return home. But that's not quite the future and the hope that I'm thinking of. Because 500 years after they returned home, the future and hope of Israel came in flesh. When Jesus came down to earth, Jesus came to rescue us from our exile. Because the problem for the Jews of the day, it wasn't just that they were physically removed from the promised land and put in Babylon. That's a physical picture that was representing the larger spiritual issue that had been going on since the garden. And that is that sinners cannot be in the presence of a holy and good God. And God, for all time, has been in the business of doing something about that. And so here and now, Jesus steps into exile in order to take us out of it. He steps down from heaven, steps down from glory. He enters into a voluntary exile. This is God himself we're talking about. And he comes into our exile to rescue us. He experiences the pain and the brokenness of a world caused by sin and exile, just like we have. He went to a cross outside the city, and on it, he cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That is the cry of somebody experiencing exile. And he's doing it on our behalf. Because when Jesus died, the reason why he died, it's to keep from us the punishment we deserve. And this punishment isn't just a 70-year exile in Babylon. It is an eternal exile in hell, separated from the presence of God forever. And Jesus came to take that punishment 
and rescue us so that we could come back home to Eden. See, we all experience exile. We don't get a choice about that. That's part of the human condition. Every one of us experiences exile. We do get one choice, though. And that choice is when we will experience exile. So this morning, everyone in here, all of us, we stand at a fork in the road. And we can either choose to take a temporary exile now, to be a citizen of the garden in Babylon, and know that we will be at home forever in the perfect presence of God. Or we can choose to make Babylon our home forever. And feel maybe a little bit more at home now, swimming with the current, and experience an eternal exile forever. That is the choice that we face. And I'm not going to sugarcoat it. Choosing Babylon is a lot easier. And you guys know this. You guys know how hard it is to follow Jesus. It's not easy. But choosing Babylon, while it might be easier now, it is surely not better. I love the way that Dallas Willard says it. He says, yeah, the cost of discipleship is high, right? Like, it is a cost to follow Jesus. It's not a walk in the park. But guess what? The cost of non-discipleship, it's higher. It is hard to follow Jesus. In the long run, it's a lot harder to not follow Jesus. We stand at a fork in the road, and guys, I'm, I'm urging you, choose Jesus. Choose the hard path. It is not going to be easy now. And for much of our life, we're not going to feel at home in this world as much as we try to make it our home temporarily for the sake of the kingdom. We're going to wrestle with this, the, the pain of sin and, and brokenness and exile. But the hope is that one day we're going to get to go home. That is the hope that we live for. So if you're here and like today you need to choose Jesus for the first time, do that. But if you're here and you need to reorient yourself and choose Jesus for the thousandth time, do that. If you're coming in weary and tired, remember this is the good path. And that one day, all of our toil in Babylon, it's going to be worthwhile when we're finally home. Let's pray. God, you are so good. Who can think of a story better than this? a God better than you. From the beginning of time, God, you have been about bringing us into your presence, about giving us the, the treasure of worshiping and glorifying you forever. And we don't deserve it at all because we have rejected you time and time again. God, this world is painful, it is broken, exile is hard. But thank you for not leaving us in exile. Thank you for, for coming down for us, to bring us back, for going into exile at great cost to yourself. And as we reflect on, on what it means to be exiles today, for however many years that you've given us in Babylon, God, I pray that you would equip us and encourage us to be the kind of people who can follow your instructions on what faithful living looks like in exile. We can't do this on our own power. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be good. And so we praise you. And as we sing, we look forward to a day when we will finally be home. Amen.